Open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We spent three weeks on what I thought would take one week of a sermon, the end of Matthew 18, or actually all of Matthew 18. And I was glad. It was, it was a good kind of mini-series in, go- in the Gospel of Matthew. It was hard. We looked at forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, uh, love within the church. We looked at church discipline. Uh, it was some really big topics, so I wanted to slow down and give it give it what it needed to really look at what Scripture teaches about these things. And I was kind of excited to, you know, move on to something a little easier. Then I looked at the passage for this morning, and we've got marriage, divorce, remarriage, and gender. Piece of cake. What could possibly go wrong in today's society? You know, it's interesting as I think about the topic for today, I'm always struck when people talk about the good old days, how things used to be so much better. And, and marriage is one of those things. Well, marriages, marriage used to mean so much more. It used to be so much better. I did my thesis, my master's thesis in seminary on changes in the family from kind of the 1940s until, well, what was then the present time back in 2000 and traced kind of how culture had impacted the American family. And it's interesting because that time frame, and the reason I chose that, is that it starts with what's known as the traditional family ideal, the, the leave it to beaver, <laughs> father knows best, you know, those typical shows that showed this perfect family ideal that everybody should be like this. And in my studies for my master's thesis, what became very clear is that That simply was not true for most American families. It was an impossible ideal that was set up that families looked at and struggled. Depression was on the rise. Economic hardship was on the rise. It was a very difficult time. And marriages, even at the heyday of what in America we look at as like the best modern American families, Marriages struggled immensely. Marriage has always been a difficult and messy topic. And today we need to look at marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Because that's what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is going to talk about in answer to a question that is brought to him. And my goal today... As I was doing my reading, I came across something by David Platt, and he talked about two words, comfort and confront. That These are two things that as we look at marriage and marriage and divorce, as a church, we need to be comforted by God's word. There are those of you that have been impacted by divorce in your life, whether your own divorce, divorce of somebody you know, maybe even your parents. There needs to be true comfort from the truth of God's word. At the same time that we comfort, we also need to confront. We need to confront the sin that surrounds and infuses so much of divorce in our world today. And we can't shy away from that because it's going to be hard for some people. We need to say, what does God's word say? Now, these two things go together, comforting those that are hurting, those that are struggling, and confronting sin. So we're going to work hard to hold those two things together. Some of you, 
as I was preparing this, I was thinking about this, and I thought some of you are going to be very uncomfortable with some of these things we're going to talk about today. Can I ask you a favor? I know that at times when we get to uncomfortable things in the Word of God or the pastor saying something uncomfortable, it's, it's very tempting to get agitated and just get up. I just can't take it and just leave. Don't leave. Okay? N- not because it offends me. I mean, it does, but that's not the reason. <laughs> It's because I want you to hear the whole truth from the word of God and from what Jesus says. The whole thing. Okay, so don't just get mad at one thing and take off. I'm really setting myself up here, aren't I? Wow, this is going to be great. Just stay. Take it all in and listen to the word of God. Not my opinions. I'm not up here to share my opinions. Let's listen together to the word of God. And let's pray for wisdom to absorb and understand and apply the word of God together. Now, this passage starts with a test. There are a lot of different types of tests. Some tests kind of judge how much we know. Uh, My oldest daughter, Lindsay, just took the SAT a couple weeks ago. Um, Did great, by the way. But that's that's one of those tests, like how much have you learned in your elementary and, and specifically high school education? How much have you learned? There are other tests that are less obvious, kind of a social test. And you know this sometimes because somebody just flat out tells you, what do you think on this issue? Are you on this side or that side? And you're going, I don't even know what you're talking about. Sometimes it's less obvious. Somebody comes to you and says, well, I think this. And here's why I think it, and I think very strongly about this, and I, I just think that anybody that doesn't agree with this is, is really not a great person. What do you think? Whoa. It's like, you know, you're invited to my minefield at 3 o'clock. Step carefully. These social tests, and that's what's going on in this passage. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, are coming to him with a test. They are putting him on the spot. And this is important to understand the context of everything that's going on here because it is in the context of a test. When Jesus had finished saying these things, this is Matthew 19, 1 and 2, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Now, let's give context to the test. The context of what's going on around it is that Jesus is on his way purposefully and deliberately to Jerusalem where he knows he will be crucified. That's the context of all of this. And as we walk through the remaining chapters of Matthew, what you're going to see is an escalating tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've seen that already, but it gets more, more and more. In chapter 20, verse 17, he tells his disciples again, he's going to Jerusalem where he'll be crucified. In chapter 21, you might know the story, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We have Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry. And all the people are saying, hail, hail, son of David, hail Messiah, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the king. And people are going, wait, king? Religious leaders are going, he's what? This guy's a a king? Who, Who does he think he is? Chapter 21, he drives out, Jesus enters into the temple courts and he drives out all the money changers and the the chief priests, they have a question, who do you think you are? By whose authority do you do these things? There's this escalating tension of authority. Jesus, the son of God, and everybody else. 
And they're clashing time after time after time. In chapter 22, they try to trap him with another question about paying taxes. And this tension just continues to grow. And it's a question we all must wrestle with. And it's at the heart of what we're going to look at today. And it's this question, who is in charge? Me? You? Culture? Media? Or Lord God Almighty? Who is in charge? If we get that question wrong, everything else will be affected by it. Who is in charge? Jesus' identity as the Messiah, their king, their promised coming Messiah, Lord God Almighty, his identity as Jesus and his teachings upset what they thought was their authority. And we still struggle with this today. When we read things in scripture and say, oh, that can't be true. Well, that doesn't apply today. Well, that was then. That's not now. We know so much better now. And we need to stop and say, who's in charge? So let's look at the test. Here's their question. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Any and every reason. Jesus, weigh in on this one. What do you think? Now, on the surface, it's pretty obvious it's a loaded question. But when we understand the culture, it's even more loaded. You see, in their time, there were many different ideas on divorce and remarriage, just as there are today. And there were kind of two sides of this major debate. One group of Jewish rabbis taught that divorce was wrong no matter what, period. Or maybe in certain cases, very extreme, it would be okay. But in general, it was wrong. Others believed, and this was the more popular opinion, a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. So that's what that phrase there when they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They're specifically tying into that debate. Jesus, weigh in on this burning question of our day. You need to pick a side. Now, why do they do this? Because they know when Jesus picks a side, it's going to make another group of people really mad. And they're trying to put Jesus in a box to say, which side of these important social issues are you on? This reminded me of a story in the Old Testament. A famous story. If you grew up in the church, you probably know the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, right? Marches around the city of Jericho with the Israelites. They've just come out of Egypt. They march around Jericho and the walls fall down and they come in and they conquer the town. There's this little scene right before that happens. And and there's Joshua. He's the new leader of the Israelites. And the Israelites know they're about to go into battle. They're about to enter the promised land. And yet they're going to come right up against the most fortified city in the land. They've been through some battles, but they're pretty nervous. And there's Jericho. Huge city. Huge walls. And Joshua is out one night and he meets a person, a messenger from God. 
And Joshua says to this messenger from God, are you on our side or their side? Are you on the side of the people of Israel or are you on the side of the people from Jericho? And I love the messenger's response, neither. Joshua chapter 5 Verse 13, here's what Joshua asks. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Do you see the difference? When we go to God and we say, God, we have these human issues and these human debates and we want to know, God, which side are you on? We see this side and this side and we need to figure out which side God is on and the Bible says, stop it. God is not here to choose human sides. We need to decide where is God. Let's be on his side instead of trying to decide if he's on ours. You see, it's a very flawed test. Our test should not be whether or not us or others are on any particular or correct side of an issue. The question should be, what does God say through his word? And will we believe that and follow that? So now let's look at how Jesus deals with this test. And again, This is a difficult issue, but there's a couple layers I want to deal with here. One is what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage, which is really important. But equally important is how he answers the question. He doesn't stand there and say, well, what do you guys think? He doesn't stand there and just offer an opinion. Although he could, he's the son of God. His opinion actually matters more than mine or yours. He doesn't take a poll and say, what does everybody else think? He doesn't talk about contemporary issues. The way Jesus answers a very difficult question is by going to Scripture. What does God say about this? And so Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, says this. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God, or Jesus goes right to the beginning of the Bible. And he quotes right from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And here's the point, right? Above and over all of this and how we are to deal with any questions in our culture, we go to the Word of God. What did God do? What has God said? And what is God's purpose? That's the starting point. That has to be the starting point. Jesus shows that God's Word has true authority over even the most contemporary of situations and ideas. What does God say? And so he goes to God's purpose in creation. Now, this is important because the question, this gets a little nitpicky here, but the question is about the Mosaic law, God's law given through Moses. And Jesus says, let's go earlier. Let's look at why God created marriage in the first place. And what he points out is that God had a plan. God created all humanity 
with a plan and a purpose. And he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? You know, this passage is supposed to be about marriage and divorce and remarriage. That's what they're talking about. And he's kind of relying on something that was assumed and understood so much. God made them male and female. But even that we've undermined in our culture today. And I really debated whether or not we should go down that road and look at gender and authority and those sorts of things. We're not. Because I want to cover the passage today. But make no mistake, based on what Jesus Christ says, as quoting from what God said in the book of Genesis, God created people male and female. Gender is God's plan. Gender is God's choice. Gender is not our choice according to the word of God. Period. And I know today people say, oh, that's hate speech. But see, we're not entering into an argument to hate people. We're saying this is what the word of God says. We must be people of the word. God made them male and female. And he made the genders with a purpose. So that in marriage, a man and his wife could come together and become one flesh. God created marriage So that in marriage, there's like this new thing that gets created. That's a part of God's creative purposes. And Jesus' point is that we didn't create marriage. We didn't define marriage. God did. He created it. He created it for a purpose. And he defined it for us. Which means only God can change any definition of marriage. Only God. Remember I said this all hinges on who's in charge. If our answer is us, and this is why we struggle with our culture today, because our culture answers that question as we are in charge, because obviously there is no God to most of our culture. And then as Christians, we come in and say, but, but that doesn't make any sense because there is a God and this is what he said. And we are like talking different languages. And we can't understand why they don't see things our way. And they can't understand why we don't see things their way. It's because we have a completely different starting point. And we must, Christians, we must have a completely different starting point. We believe there is a God who made all things for his purposes. That's our starting point. Jesus then summarizes the biblical teaching on marriage in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We didn't make marriage. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you Pharisees, you're asking who has the right to to say when a marriage should end. He says, no, 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 back up. You didn't make marriage in the first place. Only God did. So why would we have the right to rip it apart? Friends, listen. This is God's will for marriage. It is to endure. It is to last. It is not to be torn apart by divorce. That is the teaching of the word of God. I know that's hard. I know there are a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different stories here. 
And some of you have a lot of hurt in your background on this particular issue. What about this? What about this? What about this? Okay, let's deal with the overarching purpose first. Let's confront error with the word of God. And the word of God says it is God's will for marriage to endure. Jesus goes to the heart of all authority. God's plan, God's will, God's design. The Pharisees were looking in the wrong direction. They're trying to say what was allowable. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't start with what you can do. Start with what God's purpose is. Look in that direction first. If God has created marriage and has joined two people together in marriage, then for those two people to break that marriage is to undermine God's authority and to undermine God's purpose in marriage. What is God's purpose for marriage? And this is part of the problem. Because we think that the purpose in marriage is our own personal satisfaction and happiness. And so when we're not getting that in our world, we dissolve the marriage rather easily. And here's where I want to go back to my opening comment about the good old days. Because that's exactly what they thought in Jesus' day. Marriage wasn't better back then. Jewish people, so many of them, thought that they could dissolve a marriage for any reason whatsoever. There are records of somebody, a rabbi teaching, if your wife serves you something for dinner that you don't like, you have the right to write her up a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. Are you kidding me? So don't talk about the good old days. Humanity has always been a mess. Marriage has always been a mess and has always been very difficult, okay? But this is why they're asking Jesus this question. Not because they had it figured out, but because it was an absolute mess. And they want to know what the Son of God thinks. So what is God's purpose in marriage? God created all things to bring glory to him. That's God's purpose in all things, to reflect his nature, his character, his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness. All of creation was created for that singular purpose, to bring glory to God Almighty. And marriage, as we've already seen from what Jesus quoted, was a part of creation. It was a part of God's creative purposes. As we go throughout the Old Testament, we see marriage used in re, uh, to describe the relationship between God and his people, Israel. God calls them to himself like a bride. He commits himself to his people in the Old Testament like a husband to a wife. And when they are unfaithful, he uses the language of breaking a marriage vow. Marriage is bigger than just us. Marriage is a picture of God's relationship with humanity. When we get to the New Testament, we see marriage being a picture of Jesus and the church. The church is called the bride of Christ. Paul uses this imagery in Ephesians chapter 6 to show us how husbands are to love their wives and wives are to love their husbands just as Christ loves the church and the church is to love Christ. God has a much larger purpose in our marriages than our happiness. Now, I want to be careful here because I feel like when I say things like that, and and I, I say things like that often because I think it's important because that's what Scripture teaches. But I feel like what people hear is, well, God wants me to be miserable. 
That's not what I'm saying. Because the truth is there's greater joy and happiness and fulfillment to be found in following God's will than following our own happiness and joy and fulfillment. That's the lie of sin. Do this and you'll be happy. But God said this, doesn't matter. Do what you want to do. But when we trust that there is a God, he's created us for his glory and purposes. And we follow that. There is greater joy along the way. And so Jesus is tying into this eternal purpose. And I think as modern Christians, we need to accept God has a purpose for our marriages. And it is bigger than the husband. And it is bigger than the wife. And it's even bigger than the children. It's as big as his eternal plan for all creation. We need to have a much higher view of marriage. Jesus quotes from Genesis and then gives his interpretation. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. He goes to God's overarching purpose in marriage. But he leaves the question, really, of divorce unanswered. And so the Pharisees have a follow-up question in verse 7. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, we've got a problem. Jesus has basically laid out that divorce is not what God wants. And they're saying, but wait a minute, the Old Testament law that God gave to his people through Moses commands how to get a divorce. What's up with that, Jesus? This doesn't make sense. You must be wrong. This is an absolute and complete misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. They are butchering it here, which is horrible because they're supposed to be the scholars on the Old Testament law. The law acknowledges that divorce exists and gives restrictions to it, but it in no way condones divorce. Let's look at the passage, all right? We're going deep here. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4 says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again until... uh allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's the law. That's it right there. That's the law. What is this law actually about? Understand how the law works. The law deals with a sinful situation, something that's messed up, that's not working the way it should. And it introduces that by saying, if. If this is going on, or when, when this is going on, it describes the situation. The situation here is really complex and convoluted. It's if a man marries a woman and then divorces her. And then if she gets remarried and that man divorces her, and here's where the law comes in, what should happen? Can she remarry the first man? And the answer is no. That's what the law is about. 
The law is not actually teaching whether or not they should ever get divorced in the first place. It's saying if this messed up situation occurs, here's what should happen. Now, understand why this is important. There's another law that says if someone kills somebody else, then they should be put to death. What the Pharisees are doing to this law in the Old Testament would be like saying that God taught that you should kill somebody. Because there's a law saying if you kill somebody. Do you see what I'm saying here? That's not the point of the law. The point of the law is not to say if the first messed up situation, that that's being taught by God. It's saying if this sin takes place, here's what you should do. Divorce was a part of their culture. It was already there. Now, did God step in and say in the law, you're never allowed to get divorced? No, he didn't. But they're saying he commanded it. Look at what Jesus says. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. That's a big difference. Permitted. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament law, things that were massively messed up, that God allowed to continue in order to deal with other things. Just because a God allows something doesn't mean that it's being commanded Jesus says that divorce was permitted because their hearts were hard. The law was written to deal with sin. This situation of divorce is a sinful situation. It's two people that have done something wrong and gotten a divorce. Divorce is always about a sinful situation. Even when, and we'll get to when scripture says divorce is allowable, even then a grievous sin has been committed. God hates divorce because it should never happen in the first place. But we are sinners living in a sinful, messed up world. And so Jesus now deals with the situation of when is it permissible to get a divorce Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. See, in the biblical mindset, marriage involved two people coming together and being one flesh. And I know we've got kids here, so I'm going to keep this as PG as I can. When somebody becomes one flesh with someone else, they've already broken their marriage. The marriage is dissolved. That's when Jesus says, and that's the only situation that Jesus says, a biblical divorce is okay. And that person is then free to marry someone else. Now I feel that I need to mention there is another case in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says that he allows divorce in a situation where a woman presumably becomes a Christian and she's married to a non-Christian. And and he specifically says you are not to leave your husband in that situation because that put the woman in a very difficult position in their culture. The husband was in authority. He says, I don't care. You are not to dissolve that marriage. You are not to get divorced. But if the husband, the unbelieving husband, leaves, he abandons his wife then that woman can legitimately get a divorce and be remarried. I just want to bring that up because that is the other condition that we see in Scripture. 
In verse 9, what Jesus is saying is that someone who is divorced for an unbiblical reason and then remarries commits adultery. Adultery is sin. There's no way to soften what the Lord God is saying here. That's what it says. Commits adultery. This is why we must be very clear on God's purpose in marriage and very clear on God's teaching about divorce because these things matter. The heart of the matter here is the question, who's in charge? Our goal in everything, and particularly here in our marriages, should be to uphold the will of God. But we do need to understand we live in a sinful world. Things don't operate all the time according to the perfect plan of God. There is sin in the world. There are two helpful ways to think of God's will. There's God's will of wanting, sometimes known as his prescriptive will, and God's will of allowing, sometimes called his permissive will. Follow me for a second. God sometimes allows things that are contrary to what he wants. I can think of one huge example of this, and it's Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. God clearly told them, don't eat from the fruit. Yet he didn't stop them. Did God want them to sin? No, because he clearly said he didn't want that. Did he allow them to sin? Yes, because he had a plan to send his son to die on the cross in our place to save us from our sins. The reason this is important is that God has a desire. It is his plan for marriages to never end. God allows at times for divorces to occur in the case of particular sinful, messed up situations. What about those that are not married? Look at verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Now, some people think this is kind of an overreaction. I actually think they're listening to him going, wow, that's really tough, Jesus. Is it possible that it would be better just to stay single? And Jesus responds in verses 11 and 12, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. There's a lot of debate over what he means by this word. Is he talking about what he just said about marriage being hard, or as I think he's actually talking about what the disciples just said? The disciples have just said that it might be better to stay single, and yet Jesus is saying, yeah, but that's not going to work for everybody. And here's his explanation. And man, this gets into the weeds. Ready? For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Oh, how do we explain being a eunuch? All right, here's what I came up with. 
A eunuch is someone who physically cannot fulfill God's purpose of being one flesh in marriage. You with me? Got me. We good. That's the most PG I think I can make that. And actually, I think it's pretty helpful because that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. Someone who cannot, whether physically or because they're not in a marriage. They can't fulfill that aspect of creation and being one flesh. And what Jesus is saying is there's kind of three situations. Somebody could be born in a particular way where they can't do that. Someone could have chosen that or had that forced upon them. This is kind of unique to their culture where sometimes slaves serving women of nobility would be forced to become a eunuch. Ooh, gross. We'll move on. Okay. Praise God we don't do that anymore. Um, It could also, and I think this is really the point he's making, it could be a situational choice of the person. Now, this is not physically becoming a eunuch. It's living like a eunuch. He's talking about people who choose to be single. And the illustration here, even though it's very difficult, the purpose is so helpful in verse 12 that this is for the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus is saying, if you're single, use your opportunity in being single to bring glory to God. I think we can apply the same thing to marriage. If you're married, use the opportunity in your marriage to bring glory to God. We can go elsewhere in Scripture and apply this to every area of our lives. You have a job, use it for God's glory. You're unemployed, use it for God's glory. You're retired, use it for God's glory. If you have kids, you don't use them. <laughs> if you have kids, raise them for God's glory. That makes more sense. But the point here is that single people are a part of God's plan. And they can glorify God. I believe too often as Christians, we have made it seem like single people are missing out on God's purpose for their life. And this word here from Jesus Christ shows just the opposite. So I want to encourage you, if you're single, you can live and fulfill God's plan and purpose in your life. Now, how do we wrap this up? What should people do. If you're single, use your singleness to glorify God. You might have opportunities, abilities, finances, time that you can use for the glory of God in a way that married people can't. Use that opportunity. If you are single and considering getting married, dwell on the truth in Scripture about what Jesus, the Son of God, says about divorce Remove divorce as an option from your marriage before you ever get married. Talk about it with your future spouse. Talk about it with a counselor or a loved one or the pastor who's going to do your marriage. Remove that option from your opportunities. What about if you're married? Honor God with your marriage. Fight for it. Understand that your marriage is more than just you and and your spouse. It's about displaying the eternal purpose and glory of God. And if you're considering a divorce, think and pray and study very carefully about God's purpose in marriage and his teaching on divorce. Ask yourself the hard questions 
Is my purpose, is my reason rather for wanting a divorce truly biblical? And if the answer is no, don't do it. For the glory of God, don't do it. If you're considering a divorce, seek counsel from someone who will take you to the word of God. If you're considering a divorce because you're in a harmful, hurtful situation, get out of there. Find help and protection. That's a separate issue from divorce. That's about protecting you in the moment. Get help. Even if you're in a situation where your spouse has done something that the Bible would say this qualifies for a divorce, understand that Jesus' teaching is not you should get divorced. It's that you can. But you can also show mercy And that person can repent and there can be restoration, which is what we've talked about for the past three weeks. And now here's comfort for some of you. What if you've already been divorced? The truth of Scripture is that God calls a bunch of sinners to live for his glory. And he saves us through the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And we can be saved through Jesus Christ. If you've been divorced, seek to glorify God in whatever situation you're in. Draw close to Christ. Even if your divorce was for an unbiblical reason, know that there is forgiveness. Seek to obey God. Maybe you're in a situation where remarriage is not an option. Maybe God's calling you to live single now. Seek to obey God and to bring glory to Him. What if you've been remarried after an unbiblical divorce? Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Confess sin. Maybe confess sin to your previous spouse and to your current spouse. Know that there is forgiveness. And, and this is important, Honor God in your current marriage. You don't make up for one sin by committing another one. You don't make up for a sin of a previous divorce by leaving your current wife because you happen to have been divorced. Honor God in the situation you are in now. Through all of this, for all of us, understand that God is in charge. His authority, His word, In all things, marriage included, we are to seek the Lord's will, not our own. And yes, it gets difficult at times. That's why we come to the word and say, Father, teach us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sinful people looking into a picture of holiness struggling with our own imperfections and our own ideas and the ideas of our culture. And God, we come to your word and it lays out for us what you want, what you desire. And we struggle because we live in the messiness of our own lives and our own situations. And yet, God, the teaching of your grace and mercy is so overwhelming throughout Scripture 
And God, I pray that anyone here who's been touched by divorce or has struggled with that in their life and the after effects of that, God, may they receive the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners, transforms lives. And Father, I pray at the same time that as followers of Jesus Christ, we would not back down from an understanding of marriage that says it's not about us, it's all about you to live out your purpose in this world. And I pray, Father, that we would uphold a biblical teaching of marriage that says divorce is not what you want. May we be careful in our advice to one another. May we portray to this desperately lost world that there is a better way to live according to your plan and according to your glory and your mercy and your grace. Father, may we understand your side and may we seek to live on your side rather than trying to get you on our sides of issues. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.